Which women's issues should policymakers be addressing? And what can American feminism do for women in the developing world? From the Chicago Policy Review in the University of Chicago, this is Chicago Policy Radio. I'm Bradley Crawford. Today we're talking with Ms. Andy Zeisler, who is the co-founder of Bitch Media and editorial and creative director of Bitch Magazine, about policy affecting women. Thanks for being with us today, Ms. Eisler. Thanks for having me. So who is a typical reader of Bitch? Um, I think our typical readers are people who are um, very engaged with popular culture and media as kind of a force in public life and um, people who generally love it and want to see it be better. Um, you know, people who are critical thinkers and, um, and really see the media and popular culture as kind of a locus of um, a lot of, you know, how we get our ideas about public life and what we value in the world. You speak all over the country. You feel the questions from women. You get letters and email from readers. What issues concerning women do you hear about most that policymakers ought to do a better job addressing? Well, I think a big one, and I think this probably speaks to, you know, sort of corporate culture as well as public policy, is the idea of, um, you know, women as, as people who have a lifelong career trajectory that is going to be, you know, possibly interrupted by things like child rearing and child um, raising children and how that's really just not accounted for in a lot of spheres. Um, certainly in corporate culture, where there's obviously, you know, long been a glass ceiling, but even in supposedly more progressive spheres like academia, um, STEM fields, you know, science, technology, engineering, um, where there really is kind of this, this mommy track that tends to sideline not only women, but ends up affecting the careers of their partners who are often themselves in those fields. Um, and I think there really needs to be, I mean, clearly there's an acknowledgement that women's perspectives are needed in all of those fields. Um, and there are a lot of women who have made, you know, really great impacts in those fields. But I do think that policy has to address the fact that, you know, just because they may not have the same career trajectory as um, someone who's not a woman, um, there's room for flexibility and it's not ultimately going to compromise their long-term career if they you know, have to take time off for a bit. So what you're really talking about is, or saying, is that this is not uh, policy for women, it's policy for families. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And you know, and a rising tide lifts all boats when it comes to policy. I think we, we tend to really gender things like that and say, well, if if it's going to help women, it's probably going to hurt men. And that's rarely the case. Well, there's no question women are seeing their potential roles expand. Um, and that extends in many directions, both positive and negative. You have the CEO and the siren. Is that an inevitable result of self-determination? Should society be working to prevent the most negative consequences of those advancements? Well, I mean, I think society has to take responsibility for the values it instills in, you know, its citizens. And I think um, women more than, you know, 
men certainly grow up with a sense that they uh, they are going to be identified and sort of pigeonholed a lot more um, as either you know the siren or the CEO, the virgin or the whore, etc. And I think certainly um, you know there's a lot of fear out there in um, the political sphere and in other spheres about the idea of what happens when women get power. I mean, we see that right now. You know, the sort of most prominent theme in the run-up to this year's election is the idea that, you know, there needs to be this, these kind of punitive measures in place for women who have the gall to want autonomy over their reproductive choices. So I think, you know, we have, as a society, really have to reckon with our ideas about gender and power and, uh, and how we value it and how we have this very entrenched desire to um, be punitive about it. In the developing world, women's gains and goals are much more modest. 70% of those living in poverty worldwide are women, and in many cases they face limited educational opportunities, limited or no access to reproductive health services, and ongoing uh, threats of violence. But policy directed at solving those problems often is just termed international development. So is there a role for American feminism in reaching out to these women? Yeah, there definitely is. And there, this has been an ongoing issue you know, since the 1970s. I think um, global feminism in America just doesn't get a lot of attention because A, it is termed international development, and B, it's just not as sexy as a lot of the things that um, make news here. So it's absolutely been going on. It's just a little bit more under the radar. Um, you know, you have very high-profile people like Eve Ensler, who does a lot of work in developing countries with women that is explicitly feminist. You have people like Robin Morgan, who was um, a second-wave radical feminist, and she has turned her attention in the past, you know, 20, 30 years to global feminism. Um, there's a lot of focus on things like microfinance, organizations like Kiva, and how to spread the word to American feminists that, you know, it takes very little um, effort to, to really contribute to that kind of development and to frame it as an explicitly feminist project. Um, but there's also the acknowledgement that, you know, uh, American feminism has been, um, has benefited mostly sort of white upper, upper middle class women and there are a lot of American feminists who are very conscious of that and who mm -hmm. don't want to um, spread that kind of limited idea of feminism and be presumptuous about it and kind of impose that on women in developing nations who, you know, have a completely different cultural context. Um, but I do think that that's actually a place where um, people in America who don't explicitly identify with the feminist movement have been able to really raise awareness of it. I mean, I'm thinking of like uh, Nicholas Kristof and Cheryl Wudunn, who wrote a book a couple of years ago called Half the Sky. And it was about how women in developing nations are, and girls too, are really the key to making feminism kind of a way of life. Um, and it got a lot of press. And it was really, you know, it was a very, it was a hard hitting book, but it was also a very uplifting book and it was very accessible. Um, and it sort of put these issues in really, um, logical, realistic terms that it would be difficult to argue with. And that often doesn't happen with stuff that's explicitly feminist.
In many ways, the issues Bitch was founded to address seem as relevant as ever, well, which might be a white, rosy way of saying that not much has changed. What has changed for women in our culture now, say, since uh, you founded Bitch, and what victories can you claim for the work of Bitch Media? Um, you know, I don't know if I could claim anything on behalf of Bitch Media. You know, I, I, that would be that would probably sound really, really arrogant. I think it's been an interesting thing. Um, you know, we've been around for 16 years, and since then, a lot has changed, and a lot has changed in the world of you know, popular culture and media specifically as it as it relates to technology. Um, there's so much more pop culture and media. There's so much more accessibility for technology, there's so much more of a uh, sense of community and possibility that's been brought about by technology and, and modes of um, disseminating information and, and finding community. Um, I think in terms of women, it's been, as I think it has been throughout history, a little bit of a sort of two steps forward, one step back progression, um, where certain things really have improved. Um, you know what bitch concentrates a lot on is is representation of women and gender in popular culture and media and that really has changed in a lot of ways for the better um, you see a lot more varied representation of women uh, working women women of color um, people you know from who identify as from different classes um, and sort of like their their worlds and their realities it's just sort of like the expansion of the American scene that we all know but that until, you know, for a long time wasn't particularly represented in media and pop culture. Um, on the other hand, you know, if you had told me in 1996 when we started that you know, over the next you know, decade or so, there would be these efforts to really roll back some of the most basic rights, um, particularly in, in the realm of, of reproductive rights and justice, I think I would have been shocked, you know, because you don't think that um, things like politics and policy and those kind of gains move backward, you know? So I think it's, it's been a little, it's been kind of a weird, it's been a weird uh, decade or so since we started the magazine, so yeah. Well, Ms. Eisler, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to Chicago Policy Radio, a production of the Chicago Policy Review and the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago. Our podcast is produced and edited by Claire O'Hanlon and David Levine. Our theme song was composed and performed by Ryan Gee. You can find us at www.chicagopolicyreview.org and on iTunes, or email us at media at chicagopolicyreview.org. Thanks for listening, and join us next time.